0: Thanks, guys. Um, a quick announcement before we look at the scriptures together. Uh, the Hope Pregnancy Center Banquet is coming up. So Hope Pregnancy Center is a ministry that we send a lot of people to to volunteer. We financially support as a church and want to encourage you to get involved. We'd love for you to support personally as well. Uh, Kyle and Jen Hall have a couple of extra tables. I know we've also got other people typically that... that uh, get tables, what it is is they pay for a table for you to come and have a free dinner, um, but then they give you the opportunity at the dinner to give to Hope Pregnancy Center. Uh, it's going to be a great banquet this year. Benjamin Watson, NFL player Benjamin Watson, is going to be the speaker, um, so it'll be an exciting time. It's on April 2nd, 6 p.m. If you are interested in joining one of these tables and coming to the banquet, uh, possibly giving there at Hope Pregnancy Center, or just learning more about what they do. Um, You can email Hall at hotrr.com. You can just take a picture of the slide if you want. It's also going through the loop that'll be after the service if you miss it. Um, Or you can just email the office if you get confused. Just call the office if you miss it somehow. Um, But we would love to get you on the list. I think we've got some limited childcare available if you've got kids and want to attend that banquet. It's April 2nd, 6 p.m. We're excited about this opportunity. What Hope Pregnancy Center does, just to kind of put it in context, is they come along people that are facing an unwanted pregnancy. Um, And so, uh, we believe in life, we believe that God um, gives life to, to people in the womb and we, we can't take that away. And so what we like to do is come alongside folks that are, that are tempted uh, towards abortion and say, hey, how can we help you uh, to keep this child? How can we help you to carry this child? Maybe put it up for adoption, maybe just help you physically with the process so that you can take care of this child. Uh, but that's the center of what Hope Pregnancy Center does, is they come alongside people with an unwanted pregnancy and help them uh, to cherish it as life given from God. So Hope Pregnancy Center Banquet, April 2nd. Uh, Again, you can email Jen Garner Hall or email the office if you'd like to be in on that. All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures. We do this every week. We believe that as we open up the scriptures, that God speaks to us, that his Holy Spirit meets us in this time and reveals Jesus to us. We are particularly excited about this uh, habit we've had every week of seeing who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. This has been really fun. It's been really explicit, really clear, just looking at the stories of Jesus every week. And so we're in John chapter 8 this week. If you'd like to flip to John chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, it can be found in the Bibles you'll see under the chairs around page 892, I think. I haven't checked in a while. Um, I had to get a bigger print Bible, which is now not big enough, so my Bible doesn't match that Bible anymore. But it's 892, 893, in that range. And we're calling it this week, as we look at the, the second half of John 8, we're calling it The Good Son. The Good Son. Um, so the, the problem here, to set this up, is that we are rebellious children, guilty of cosmic treason. That's the problem that we all face as human beings. It's not just a problem with my race. It's not just a problem with your race. It's a problem with every human being. We are all of the race of Adam who rebelled. And we, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we rebel as well. We're not good kids. We're bad kids, okay? And Jesus is the only truly good kid. Have you ever had a moment where your kid just did something gorgeous, beautiful, and you're so proud, right? Have you ever had one of those moments? You're like, yes, um, I've had those moments over the years. My kids are, are grown now, my last one's a senior. Um, and I remember this one particular moment where it was this kind of contrast between not doing the thing I taught my son to do, but on the other end, really in the end, doing the thing I wanted him to do, right? And those things were kind of there side by side. Um, so I was coaching my son's soccer team when he was four or five Uh, And when you coach little kids soccer, I mean, basically at that age, you're just like, no, go that way, right? Like, that's basically coaching, so I'm not much of a soccer genius, but I could do that. So I was coaching them, uh, and I remember this one particular game. You know, there are little things you teach the kids, like don't stop and pick flowers on the soccer field, right? Follow the ball, go the right direction. There's some basics there. One of them that we always were trying to teach the kids was tie your shoes, or if you can't, get one of us to tie your shoes, right? Right? Uh, And so I'd been working on that with my son, and in this particular game, his shoes were not tied, right? He had not double-knotted them, and I remember seeing him out there running on the field with his loose shoestrings and thinking, oh, he didn't do what I told him to do, right? I was a little disappointed. And he was, you know, running with the ball. What do you call that? Dribbling? Right, dribbling the ball. And he comes into a crowd, you know, it's a little mob of four-year-olds. They all, it's like a, almost like a rugby scrum, you know, at that age, and it's like, and he comes out of the scrum, right? He comes out of the mob, with no shoes on, right? But he still got the ball. And it was like one of the proudest moments of my life. He's running down the field dribbling the ball and he scores a goal and his shoes are gone, right? Like his shoes got left behind because he didn't tie them. And so it was, it was just one of those moments where I was like, man, you should tie your shoes because that's gonna happen. And then I was like, but hey, he scored a goal, right? Like he ran right out of his shoes and he didn't let that stop him. And there's a parable like this in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Jesus says, I tell you what, there's two kinds of sons. There's one son, the father says, hey, go work in the field. One son says, no. The other son says, yes. And he says, it's interesting because one son can say, yes, yes, father, I'll do what you say, and then not do it. The other son can say, no, I'm not going to do what you say, I'm not going to do what you do, I'm not going to follow you, I'm not going to obey you. And he starts to walk in the other direction and then he repents and he says, Now I'm gonna do what my daddy has told me to do. And he turns around and he does the right thing. And Jesus says, really in the end, that's the point, right? Like saying you're gonna do the right thing is not the same thing as doing the right thing. And he used that parable in Matthew to kind of frame a similar problem that he's gonna be talking about in John 8 today. And that problem is as religious people, we can be saying yes to God and be walking in the opposite direction, not actually heading for the goal that he set us up for. And so what I want you to see in the text today is that we all do that to some degree, but particularly we need to be careful if we're religious people. Particularly, there's a unique religious problem that those of us that tend to think of ourselves as the good ones, right, as the ones that go to church we have this problem of pretending religiously and then, and then walking in the other direction. Then not really trusting God, just trusting ourselves. Like, hey, I showed up, I, I went to church, I did my thing, but we're not actually trusting Jesus. And so Jesus is the, one, is the good son. He's, he's the one that always does what we were supposed to do. And so kind of from, from 50,000 feet, the big picture theologically, we've all done the wrong thing. Jesus is the only one that's done the right thing. And as you entrust yourself to Jesus, he changes your heart and you begin to do the right thing, you begin to walk in a new direction. We're not perfect, we don't do the right thing every time, but we begin to walk in that new direction. We might forget to tie our shoes, but in the end we're gonna achieve the goal, right? We're gonna follow him. So let's read, it's John chapter eight, we'll start in verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, right, so these are the ones that are like, oh, we follow you, so that's the context. To the Jews who had believed him, So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. See, and there's two families here. So another way to look at this is, it's not just two kinds of sons, it's not just two kinds of daughters, it's not just two kinds of children but it's two families all together. Romans five summarizes it this way, two races. You're either in the race of Adam, you do like Adam did, or you're in the race of Jesus. He's the new chief of a new tribe that we can belong to by faith. And that's what Jesus, that's the, the two ways that Jesus is setting up here. And Jesus is saying, even if you're religious, even if you go to church, even if you said, I believe in you, but you don't abide in him, you don't continue in him, you don't trust him, but you're trusting yourself, you're trusting your churchiness, or your conservativeness, or your being a good neighborness, or whatever it is, you're trusting yourself and not trusting Jesus, you're in danger of, of just walking down that same road that Adam did. And so that's the danger that Jesus is setting up for the religious people of his day. Um, I see three ways that this works out, and so as we unfold this, three things that Jesus kind of pulls out of the text here. One is that we're addicted to sin. I use the word addicted on purpose because it says we're slaves to sin, um, but I think addiction is kind of the modern way we say that. We're addicted to sin. And then the second thing that Jesus is gonna point out is that we like to entertain lies. We play around with, with things that are not true. The truth is not in us, but the lies are in us, and that's, that's dangerous. And then finally, we're content with death. We're content with death. We're, again, we just play around with it. Instead of trusting in the good son, the true son, instead of trusting in Jesus, we trust in ourselves and we remain in, in death. So kind of a negative outline today. So I'm gonna pray uh, that God would help us to see the hope in this. That Jesus is saying, come follow me. That's, that's the alternative, follow me, trust me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent Jesus for us. It says in this text today that you sent him for us because of your love. Saw several weeks ago in John three, you you love the world so much that you gave us your son. So we praise you for that. And Father, help us to recognize where where we're walking off the path, where we're trusting ourselves and not obeying our Heavenly Father, trusting you and what you lay out for us. Um, We pray that your spirit would open our eyes this morning and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that I want us to kind of focus on here in the text as it's unfolded is that we are addicted to sin. We are addicted to sin. And again, remember, he's talking to people who it says at the beginning, believed in him. So I just wanna clarify, the scriptures are very clear that if you truly believe, if you trust yourself to Jesus, that you're saved, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. That's solid, we believe that here, nothing can make you unsaved if you're saved but it is possible to have a mental assent. And I believe that's what it's talking about here. There are some people that are like, okay, I think he's the one. And then as he keeps pressing them to really entrust themselves to him, they walk away. Um, So here, I believe he's using that phrase in its its looser sense. There's a kind of belief that's just a a loose mental assent. James talks about this in James chapter two. There's a true faith. So uh, when you look at scriptures, when Paul, who's written most of the New Testament, talks about faith, He like 99% of the time talks about faith as true faith. And so he talks about it in this absolute sense. If you have faith, you're saved, boom, it's done. But James, and then here even a little bit John, talk about a kind of fake faith. A kind of just mental assent, like checking a box, like okay, I kind of believe that, or I think think God's real, or I, I think I believe in some kind of mental way that this cross thing is true, but that's different than really entrusting yourself to it. And so Jesus is laying that out here. He's saying, okay, you say you believe me, but do you really believe me? And so that's what I want to kind of press on you today. Like, where are you? Are, are you someone who just grew up in Christian culture? And so you're just like, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians, or I cried at a camp, or you know, or whatever it is. Like, I had some experience. But do you really trust Jesus, right? That, that's the question for us today. So he says that we're addicted to sin, and he's talking to the religious people here. Look again at verse 31, Jesus Said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. That word abide is stay, remain, like hang out, rest. If you rest in my word, like if if you're giving yourself to my word, to who I am, what I say, then you're truly my disciples, you're truly my followers. Verse 32, and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Listen to their response to this. So they say in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus is saying, hey man, you got a sin problem. If you trust me, I'll, I'll set you free from that, that slavery, that addiction to sin. And they're like, how dare you say that we have a problem? That's, that's their answer to Jesus. And so I wanna take myself out of this, right? And say, you don't have a gripe with me, But Jesus is asking you this morning, are you willing to come to him? And are you saying, how dare you say that I need to come to Jesus, right? Is that rising up in your heart? How dare you? I've got got this certificate of baptism, how dare you? I taught Sunday school, how dare you? I serve in the nursery, right? The holy of holies. How dare you imply that I'm enslaved to sin? And And Jesus is saying, it's a human being problem. What's really fascinating is liberal scholars um, out of the German, it's called critical scholarship, the German tradition of scholarship, have said this is a problem passage because later on Jesus is gonna say, you know, you Jews are really children of the devil. And so anti-Jewish people have taken that to say, all Jews are children of the devil. And they've, they've applied it badly, right? Kind of Nazi theology. And so there's this weird swing where where people who really don't trust the authority of Scripture have swung and said, okay, well, we don't wanna do Nazi theology, so we're gonna just say that this is wrong, this chapter's wrong, right? John the Apostle or some other later writer, who knows, because we don't really trust the Scriptures, put this in Jesus' mouth. That's what people say to react to that, because we don't wanna make it sound like Jesus is saying the Jews are children of the devil. Jesus is not saying all Jews are children of the devil, Jesus is saying all human beings are children of the devil. He's just talking to Jews in this moment, right? saying all human beings. We, that's, that's where we come from, right? Entrusting trusting to the lie. And so there's this really interesting back and forth that we're gonna see through the whole section. We're just gonna say, either you trust Jesus or you don't. And if you trust yourself, again, I know this is pushing too hard. So, you know, pardon me, but if you're a really capable person, and we've got a lot of you here, if you're a really capable, really respectable, like, you know how to do things. You do things right. Your life is in order. You're, on, you're in grave danger of thinking that you are enough. And that is the theology of Satan. That's the theology of Satan. And you're enslaved to it. And you don't even realize it. So you end up being enslaved to sin, right? And you're saying, but Dave, I'm not strung out on the floor you know, doing heroin. I'm not enslaved. I'm not addicted. Because that's how the religious strong people see it. They're like, well, we're not begging on the street, right? We're making our house payments and our life is in order and everything is clean and nice. Those are the people that Jesus is talking to here, the capable, strong people. They're saying, you're still addicted to sin. You're addicted to sin, you're still a slave. They're like, how dare you? We're children of Abraham. What that response is saying is like, no, we're the good people, right? You've got it all wrong, Jesus. We're the good people. So those people, you know, with the drug problem, those poor people, those outsiders, those Gentiles, those non-Jews, those are the people that have the problems. Jesus is like, no, we all, we all have the problem. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that's where he universalizes it. If any of you sin, you're a slave to it. You're addicted to it. It's a human being problem, it's not just a Jew problem. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So last week I teased you with the um, Eskimo wolf hunter story, remember that? I was like, I'm gonna tell you the story. No, never mind. I don't have time. Uh, so I'm gonna tell you this week. It's, it was in a book um, called like Great Illustrations for Youth Talks, okay? I had this, this little book when I was a youth pastor and all I knew were like five verses about the gospel and I had this book that had great illustrations, but it really is great, okay? And the idea is that Eskimo wolf hunters will paint a big knife with blood and where they live apparently it's cold and things freeze outside. I don't fully understand that, but they're, they're painting the blood on the knife and it's freezing and it's making a blood popsicle and they stake it down to a, a root or a tree or a rock or something solid and the wolves come and lick the blood off of the knife. And the wolves keep licking the blood. So all the blood is gone and they're just licking the knife and then the knife is cutting their tongue and then they're drinking their own blood and before they know it, they've bled to death and they're dead. Now, I don't know if any Eskimos ever really caught a wolf doing this, right? But it is a fantastic illustration of what we do when we pursue sin instead of pursuing Jesus. We're like, this tastes good. This is what I need. And we just keep going and we keep going and there's this, there's this place where you're no longer in control. Jesus is saying, even those of you that are buttoned up and clean and you mow your lawn and you do your life right and everything is in place and everything is in order, you are also Enslaved to sin. Because as long as you think you are enough, you're addicted to sin. Sin is selfishness. Sin is like, God, I'll do life without you. I don't need you, right? And, and we'll get to that in the next section. But let's continue the text here. Jesus goes on. He says, Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verse 35 says, The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So he's like, There's a distinction here. The son is a part of the house forever, the slave is not. Do you wanna be a part of the family or not? Do you wanna be connected to the father or do you wanna do your own thing? Do you wanna be independent? Verse 36 says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. That's where he's setting it up and saying, okay, you're not really true sons. You're not really true son. So the question that I have for you is, is what is the sin that you're, you're playing with? And you're like, you know what, my, my life is pretty much in order, so it's okay for me to kind of play with this little sin over here in the corner. It's, it's not a big deal. What's that sin that you're pursuing? Because you know, you're like, well, everything else is, is good, so this doesn't really matter. I would say you've gotta got grab hold of that and throttle it. John Owen was a Puritan that talked about mortifying the flesh, killing our sin. If you're not killing sin, it will kill you. If you're toying with sin, you have a problem, right? You've gotta have this utter like panic, terror towards the sin in your life. And that goes for those of you that are strung out on the floor with heroin, just as much as it goes for those of you whose life is completely in order. And remember, Jesus is here talking to the ones whose life is in order. He's saying you're in the greatest danger because you think we're sons of Abraham. Our life is in order. We've memorized some Bible verses. Our life is clean. We're doing just fine. The danger of that road is I'm doing so fine I don't even need God. I'll just take God's rules. I'll just hang out in God's house. I'll learn some of God's word and it will make me independent so I won't even need God. I can be my own God. What are next steps for you to move beyond that? Uh, number one, I think just recognizing um, that sin exists, recognizing your own sin. So um, kind of the liberal way we deal with this is sin is not a concept that we agree with, right? So we see that more and more in our culture. How dare you say that this is a sin? How dare you say that that is a sin, right? Like, like right now, I think homosexuality is, is a popular one. It's like. To say that it's a sin is the most evil thing ever, right? And we're like, wait, hold on. The church has been saying stuff is a sin forever, right? Like there's a bunch of sins out there. That's just one more of them. There's a bunch of sins. We all have sins. The way Romans 3.23 describes this is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're not picking on this sin or that. We're saying we're all sinners. And you either have a posture of like God gets to tell me what's a sin and what's not, and I will try to follow him, or I get to say what's a sin and what's not. And so a lot of our culture is moving towards the, it's not okay to say anything is a sin. That's where a lot of our culture is moving. There's this other category though, again, context for Jesus, he's talking to religious people. And the context for religious people, we see this in conservative cultures all over the world, here in the Bible Belt, as well as in other countries where they have other religions, where they'll take like seven or eight of the commandments and they say, we're gonna do these really well. And then they're gonna ignore a couple based on cultural preference, right? Right, so a lot of times religious people in the Bible belt will say, we're gonna keep the moral laws, we're gonna to try to be faithful in our marriages and practice um, morality in this framework, but we're gonna be slanderous and backbiting and not actually love each other, right? Which is a sin. And you see this in, in all different cultures, right? There, you've got your six, seven, eight commandments you're doing pretty good at, but your heart is not really devoted to the Lord. You don't really love people. You don't really stand for justice. You don't really give yourself to serve others. So recognize that in your own self. Romans 3.23, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? Or you're like, no, 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 that's for the bad people. That's for the addicts that are strung out on the floor. Not for me. And Jesus is saying, no, it's for you. If you sin, you're enslaved to it. You're addicted to it. You need Jesus to set you free. Only Jesus can set you free. Not more self-help. Not more pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Good job, that's great. You've done a great job with your bootstraps. But you need Jesus, okay? You need him. And that's what Jesus is begging for you to come to him. The other thing we need to understand is that we entertain lies. So look at verse 39, this transition here. Um, He's the only son, he's the only child that doesn't entertain lies. The rest of us, the human race, entertain lies, which makes us actually of the line of Satan. Um, Like I said, Romans five says we're in the tribe of Adam, but Adam gave himself over to the lies of the serpent. And so we're gonna see that here in this section. Verse 39 says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Right, so they're saying we're on the good side, we're on the good team, Abraham's our father, we're Jews. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Remember what Abraham did? Galatians talks about this. Romans talks about this. Genesis, where you see the original Abraham stories talk about this. Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you fully trust God, or are you trusting in yourself? He goes on in verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. It's not what Abraham did. Abraham didn't say, oh, words from God, I'm going to kill the messenger. Verse 41, you're doing the works your father did. And then they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do so you hear what they just did? They just threw him under the bus. They are like, man, you, you came, I can't say the word because it's in church, right? Like you're this, you, you came from sexual immorality. We don't even know who your dad was. Like you had questionable circumstances in, in the way you were born. So you're illegitimate, but we're legitimate. Again, we're the good people, Jesus. You're clearly not the good people because we are the good people. And if, if you were good people, you'd recognize that we were good people, right? It's, it's tribal thinking here. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Um, this is the understatement of the year, right? They just, they just like called his mother names, right? They just accused him of a background of sexual immorality. They were just like, I mean, maybe you've been accused of these kind of things. You're nothing. You're an outsider. You're scum. You don't count. That's what they just said to him. How does Jesus respond? He's like, no, you should love me. It's so calm. It's like bizarre, his response. Like I would be freaking out, right? Like, wouldn't you be mad? You'd probably be swinging. You'd probably take a swing at him. And he's just, he's peaceful. No, if you were really from God, you'd love me because God sent me. I'm from him. I came from him. And again, John 3, that great section where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, it's really clear. God shows his love to us by sending Jesus. He didn't just leave us here. So one of the great objections to Christianity is how could God allow us to live in a world of suffering? Life is unfair. Life is painful. The Christian answer to that is we don't understand all the whys, but we have a beautiful what, and that is that God sent Jesus for us. So we still don't, you know, like Job, we still don't have a full explanation for why. Why would God make a world where we suffer? I I don't know, but he sent Jesus for me. I'm suffering, you're suffering, we're in this broken world, and he sent Jesus for us, and he proves his love by sending Jesus for us. He's not a God who's remote, he's not this deistic God that just stands on the outside, he winds the clock, and then he walks away. He's a God who has invaded our world, who's come into your suffering and my suffering, and he's suffered in every way as we have, yet without sin. And so he proves his love for us in that. Jesus says, here I am. God has sent me for you. You should respond to me in love is what Jesus is telling them. And then he says in verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You Cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning So real basic logic that he just kind of keeps stating over and over again, you have an identity and you act out of your identity. So if you are a peach tree, you're gonna grow peaches, right? If you're an avocado tree, you're gonna grow avocados. He's saying you are a child of the devil, that's your identity, because you're lying and you're believing his lies, right? So what's the original lie of the devil? Grabbed a picture here of a snake, no offense to the herpetologists, but the scriptures say that Satan was in the form of a serpent. Scripture says elsewhere like a dragon, right? We don't fully understand like, what that looked like in that time, but we understand what he said. He said in Genesis 3, I think it's 14, he said this, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. That's the lie, guys. And it's so subtle, right? That's the lie that those of us that are religious, those of us that live a pretty cleaned up life, we're in danger of stepping into, because we're like, I got this. I'm not gonna die, it's not gonna kill me, right? One of the biggest turning points I see with guys as we're working through porn addiction is actually recognizing that it's killing you. So those of you that aren't getting help, those of you that aren't gonna get help anytime soon, you're believing this lie. You're saying, it's no big deal. It's not gonna kill me. It's not hurting anybody. You're not recognizing that you're actually killing other people, you're enslaving the people in the industry, as well as destroying your own soul. And that's the way it is with every sin, right? You pick on that one, because it's such a big problem in our culture right now. But everything, selfishness, whatever it is, you're like, it's not, it's no big deal. I deserve this, right? the old McDonald's commercial, you deserve a break today. Right? I think that's a lot of times how we walk into sin. Um, not to hate on McDonald's, I, I, like, I like the burgers. Can I, can I make a countercultural statement? I think McDonald's is pretty good. Um, <laughs> but we, we walk into the like, I need a break, I deserve this. It's not gonna hurt anybody, it's no big deal. That's, that's the kind of lies that we're telling ourselves. That's the lie that the serpent said. Adam and Eve were like, no, God told us not to the serpent was like, it's not gonna kill you. Underlying that is God is holding out on you. There's joy and fun to be had if you disobey God, and you're not gonna get that if you obey him. So the choice that we make, the choice that Adam and Eve made was we'll take the, the blessings of creation and we'll decide how to steward them. We've got this whole buffet of creation. We're gonna decide how it is to be enjoyed and we'll we'll separate ourselves from the creator. We don't want a relationship with the creator, we just want his stuff, we don't want him. And so Jesus is saying, that's what you're doing. You're opting for independence, being your own God, instead of dependence on God the Father. And what does dependence on God the Father look like? It looks like accepting, trusting, abiding in the words of his son. He's like, I'm the rescue mission. Jesus is saying, I'm here. You've been needing me for thousands of years and, and now I'm showing up and you're saying, no, 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 we got this, right? No, we'll, we'll be fine. I, I need us to think about it like this. What are sins we need to confess? What are sins we need to admit where we are saying, it's not gonna hurt me? Surely I won't die. What are those things? Just kinda examine your own heart, ask the Holy Spirit like, Lord, show me, are there things in my life that I just haven't even realized at this point where I'm just saying, it won't kill me? Surely I won't die? We need to recognize that and and offer that to Jesus. We need to have this kind of complete surrender of like, okay, Jesus, whatever you say, instead of of independence, I can do it myself, dependence, Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do that. I trust you, I'll I'll follow you. I'll, I'll do whatever you say. Okay, last section here. Well, one more, one more quote before we move on. Um, we show our sonship of the father of lies by retelling that lie in our own life. And this was a quote I thought was really helpful by Sinclair Ferguson, And we'll move on. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. So as I said, this very negative kind of outline here, it's a lot of accusation where Jesus is saying, you're believing the lies, what's, what's the opposite of that? So we confess areas in, in our life where we're believing the lies and we're, because of that, showing ourselves to be children of the, of the liar, of the devil. The opposite of that is entrusting ourselves to Jesus, which, which makes us children of the living God. Remember John one that sets all this up? He gave the right to become children children not of the flesh, children not of our, our race or our tribe, but children of God, born of God, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name. And so the way Ferguson talks about this and a lot of other authors I've liked is are we living as orphans, thinking I've gotta do life on my own, independence, or are we living as adopted children? So I can, I can be an orphan where I gotta take care of myself and then I get adopted into the family of God by what Jesus has done for me. And then I know he's gonna take care of me, I'm in his family, it's gonna be okay. So I wanna give that that positive side. So don't be the one who entertains lies, be the one who loves the truth, that God loves you. Live as a son, as a daughter of God, as Ferguson says. This is a little book he has, it's really good, it's Children of the Living God, fantastic book. It's really short, for those of you who don't like long books, Sinclair Ferguson's book is fantastic, Children of the Living God. It's just all about living as a child of God, living in the truth. So last point, we're content with death. And so we're happy to just live in our lives, right? Continue to be addicted to sin, thinking, uh, I'm not really a slave because I'm one of the good people, right? And we entertain lies, thinking I'm fine, I'm independent, I'm strong, I'm healthy. And what that means then ultimately is we are content with death. So let's look at verses 48 through 59. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Um, it sounds conversational when I say it. I think they're probably screaming at him, right? Like they're probably yelling at him. Uh, there's probably some Mediterranean close talking going on here. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So he's like, one of the proofs that Jesus is laying out for them, he's like, I've never sought my own glory, God the Father glorifies me. So again, you can contrast that with those of us that are not good sons, that are not good daughters. We're living under the lie, we're living as orphans instead of living as adopted children of God. The contrast is we're glorifying ourselves. We have this glory hunger, right? We're just trying to suck in whatever we can, fill our own glory, instead of entrusting ourselves to the Father. Jesus says, I I entrust myself to him. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. That's the promise, right? So the opposite of that is we're content with death. If you entrust yourself to him, you won't know death. Now, bad news, I think he's talking about spiritual life, right? The way John talks about that is the eternal life starts now in Christ and it continues on through eternity. And so we know resurrection life in Christ. Um, physically, we will get sick and die. Um, so this is not a health and wealth gospel. This is not like, if you really believe, then you'll never actually get sick again. No, we're, we're, we're all gonna get sick and die. Even, even the people that Jesus healed, right? Like if Jesus heals you, and you have some cerebral disease right now, we've prayed for believers in our body and God heals them, but then we all eventually die, right? Our bodies eventually succumb to physical sickness and death and then we head into resurrection life which is ultimate healing. So we're all in Christ granted ultimate healing. Sometimes we get a temporary stay, right? And the way the apostle Paul frames that is he says it's better by far to be with Jesus but we don't have the authority to make that decision. Jesus gives us our orders. So if Jesus says, I'm gonna heal you so you can stay in this rotten world and and serve me longer, I'm gonna heal you so you can be in this world of suffering and death and carry your cross and be my disciple, then we say, thank you, Jesus, for healing me. I'll keep suffering in this world. That's what healing means. Healing means prolonged suffering in this world for God's glory. But when we die and we go into resurrection life, we have ultimate healing. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here, eternal life, ultimate healing, seeing Jesus face to face, having every tear wiped away, walking with him in full freedom. And that's what we look forward to. And he's saying, if you entrust yourself to me, that's where you're headed. That's the promise and that's what enables us then to live radically now, right? To actually love other people, to no longer be selfish, to hold on our things more loosely, to hold on to our life more loosely, to be free to serve and to love other people. Because we know, you know what? In the end, I'm gonna be good. Jesus is gonna take care of me. Problem is, so often we were content with death. So again, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're like, this doesn't make sense. Everybody dies. How can you even say that? Look at verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Of whom you say, he is our God. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Jeez, yeah, this is just crazy, right? Like, Who talks like this? The king of the universe is the only one that gets the opportunity to talk like this. Jesus, like I know him, you don't know him, you're a liar. I do know him and I keep his word. Jesus is saying he's the good son. He's the one we've been waiting for. Verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? He's saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, scholars debate this, right? Like they're not sure exactly what he means because there's some places where Jesus talks about he's not the God of uh, the dead but of the living and so there's this sense that Jesus has that the patriarchs are now kind of alive in the presence of God. This, This concept that's carried through in the New Testament that when we die, we... We get to be with God, right? Um, And so there's a sense, you know, maybe he's saying, you know, spiritually Abraham's alive now, but I think the main point he's talking about is when the promise was given to Abraham, that the whole world would be blessed, that Satan would be crushed, that the serpent would be destroyed, that evil would be overcome through Abraham's line, Abraham believed God and rejoiced in the promises of God. So this is a contrast, right? Abraham saw my day, saw that God was gonna save the world and he rejoiced in me. Now we don't know that Abraham had the details of, you know, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem of this woman named Mary and it'll be, you know, around 0 AD, right? Like he didn't have all these historical details, right? But he believed God that God was gonna do what God said. God was gonna save the world. And so Jesus is saying, Abraham had the sense to rejoice, Do you have the faith of Abraham, that God's going to reverse all this, or are you just content with death? You're just like, no, we got it. We got it. God, we don't need you. We got our religion. We don't need God. We got our blessings. We don't need the blesser. We have creation. We don't need the creator. They say, "You're, you're not even 50 years old, boy, right? That's probably what they're saying. You're just a kid. You barely have a beard, right? Jesus says this, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Already in chapter eight, a couple of times, he said the I am, I am he earlier. Scholars will say that there's like this kind of chain of translation where Isaiah 41 uses more the I am he phrase, and Exodus three uses more of just the I am phrase, but it's it all points back to the Old Testament name of God, the personal God of the Old Testament. He revealed himself in the most personal way loving, gracious, covenantal ways as Yahweh is one of the ways we pronounce that. Jehovah is one of the ancient ways of pronouncing that. And the name just means I am. It's God revealing himself as this ultimate objective, loving, faithful, gracious God. And Jesus is saying, that's who he is, saying I am. And he could have said it in different ways, but he said it this way on purpose. There would have been cleaner grammatical ways to say it. He he purposefully picked the way he said it so that they would know he's associating himself with the God of the Old Testament. He's saying, I am that God. I was there. I was with him. I was the one making promises to him. That's what Jesus is saying. So what's their response? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus says, you're dying. If you would come to me, you'd have a way out of death. And they say, okay, we're gonna kill you. They pick up stones to destroy him. They're content with death. The C.S. Lewis quote I read last week, it's, we're like kids making mud pies in a slum, having no concept of a vacation out at the sea. God is saying, come to me. I've got so much better for you. Why are you content with death and suffering? He's inviting us to come to himself. One of my favorite uh, books early on in the Christian life. I read a couple of books by this guy named uh, Bob George, um, and he, I think that's a scene from Portlandia, but it's people dumpster diving. And he tells a story about a restaurant owner who found someone eating out of the dumpster, and the restaurant owner says, man, I don't, I don't want you to suffer like this. I want you to come in. I'm going to give you free food. He brings him in, and he sets out a menu before him. He's like, you can have whatever you want, and the, the guy says, I'd, I'd rather go back out and eat trash out of the dumpster." And of course, it's a ridiculous story. None of us would do that, right? But the scripture frames it and says, yeah, that's what we do every day. That's what we do when we choose sin. We're saying, I'd rather get out of the dumpster than entrust myself to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, he's he's the only way out. So again, hear this. The solution is not, well, okay. I'll just stop sinning, right? To be clear, that is the command, and that is the direction we should go. But the only way we can do that is by turning to Jesus, right? So if you're sinning and you're walking in this direction, and you're just like, I just gotta stop this, I just gotta stop this, the only thing that can break sin's hold on you is Jesus. Thomas Chalmers talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. When something grabs your heart that you love more than the sin then that will pull your desires in a new direction and the way this is described as the new covenant is the writing of God's law on our hearts. And so yeah, maybe we forgot to tie our shoes, but now we're going the right direction, right? And and maybe we look stupid, maybe we look silly, but we're we're following the goal. We're going the way that we should go. We're entrusting ourselves to the good, to the good son, to the one that's done everything right. And so Christian theology says that Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed to us as we entrust ourselves to him. If you look to Jesus as the source of your salvation, God sees you through Jesus. God looks at you with, with sheer delight, with love. He sees you hidden in Christ. He sees you as beautiful and as righteous, as just. You're hidden in him. And he says, you are now safe in Jesus and I delight in you. And now because of that delight, follow me. Begin walking in new life. Begin obeying me because you are so confident of my love for you. Stop sinning because you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the grace you've offered us in Christ. We thank you that you call us to entrust ourselves to the good son. We pray that you would continue to lead us and shape us by this glorious gospel that grabs hold of our hearts. God, we recognize that none of us have been good kids. We've all done the wrong thing. We've walked in the opposite direction. We've tried to do life on our own. But you offer us adoption in Christ. You make us your children by grace. Help us to trust you and to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.